Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs here at Dirt Towers in Adlington, Chorley, Lancashire in the UK. This is the second part of a two-part episode all about Games Workshop and Citadel Miniatures in the early years, including all the bits that didn't quite fit in the first part. It's like a speciality box set. Here on the Grognard Files, we like to look backwards and forwards at the same time to understand the heritage of RPGs. This episode has been particularly misty-eyed in its wallowing in the nostalgia for a golden age. And I've been taken aback by the number of listeners who've been in touch to share their own personal memories of Games Workshop. Memories like this one, from John Solway. Dirk, 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 what a fabulous episode for UK grognards everywhere. I was one of those teenagers in that shop as often as my pocket money would allow. However, it wasn't the Dalling Road shop where I bought my first white box D&D. My friend Cedric and I were sold our box at 97 Uxbridge Road by a very young and bearded Ian Livingstone. We walked around the back of a terraced house with a travel agent on the corner, along a little path to what I remember looked a bit like an outhouse or a shed. I'm guessing from what Tim Olson was saying that this was actually where Steve Jackson and the original crew were living, selling stuff out of their flat. We bought one of the original shipment of white box sets imported by Gaines Workshop. I still have it, in mint condition, along with some brilliant old publicity material featuring Gaines Workshop's original logo, a Mickey Mouse rip-off, with a thought bubble saying, Games? Thanks for that, John. There's plenty more stories from listeners later in the podcast where I'll delve into the postbag. Before that, I have a contribution from at HobgoblinOrange from Twitter, who, along with Simon Perrins, first suggested that we looked at early Citadel miniatures. And he gives some context setting and a potted history of the minis themselves. Then it's the second part of the Tim Olsen interview. This time he faces my awesome anecdotometer. He tells some of the stories behind those early days as a manager in the Dalling Road branch of Gaines Workshop. At Daily Dwarf returns with the second part of his overview of miniatures in White Dwarf magazine. This time looking at tabletop heroes and heavy metal. My co-host, Blythe, clambers into the attic here at the all-new Dirk Towers where we look at some of those minis that we had back in the day and reflect on the impact that they had on our games. Once again, I make no apology for the nostalgic wallowing in this episode. Just don't resist it. Get yourself a brew and a hobnob and relax. By the way, I believe they've started making hobnob balls or nibbles. We'll have none of that here. If we let them turn biscuits into balls, who knows where they'll stop. Ramblers, let's get rambling. A potted history. 
by Obgoblin Orange. I came into the gaming miniatures hobby in 1984, which was the tail end of Citadel Miniatures pre-slotter period, before the introduction of slotter paces in 1985. By this time, their older ranges, FA, FF, etc., had either been discontinued or absorbed into the Sieve series. A lot of those older ranges were poorly executed and showed the limits of the sculpting medium and techniques at the time. A notable name from Citadel's early years was Humphrey Leadbitter. Leadbitter has fallen off most people's radar, and probably for good reason. He stopped sculpting for Citadel in the early 80s and went on to work in children's TV animation instead. The Adventures of Portland Bill is probably the best-known show he worked on. When he swapped industries... Children's TV's gain was also Citadel's gain. By 1983, Citadel miniatures were supplied in purple blister packs, or box sets, rather than loose in fishing tackle trays or carded polythene bags. I spent an inordinate amount of time in Model Mania, a model shop in Hazel Grove, going through the revolving display rack of blisters from 1984 onwards. By the end of 1984, Citadel had really started to come into its own. Sculptors Ali Morrison, the Perry Twins and Nick Bibby hit their strides and the earlier, poorly sculpted ranges were replaced with figures using more sophisticated techniques in modelling. The lumpy, badly proportioned Citadel miniature was consigned to the past. These much-improving sculptors were soon joined by Bob Naisbeth and Jess Goodwin. Goodwin was already well known to the Citadel management as he'd sculpted for Asgard Miniatures, a precursor to Citadel Miniatures, which was also run by Brian Ansell. All of these names, with the exception of Nick Bibby, still work in the industry. Bibby still works as a sculptor, but mostly creating large bronzes inspired by nature. Some of the highlights of the pre-slotter era for me were C-35, Knights of Chaos, C-13, Night Goblins, C-20, the Perry Twin Trolls, and C-17, Skeletons. The Stuff of Legends website is a great resource and it shows a lot of these miniatures and the advertisements that featured in Citadel journals, compendiums and promotional flyers. So, 1985 was a landmark year. And a lot of people think that the greatest change in Citadel miniatures was that change in the slaughter base, which arrived in full force in 1985. Of course it was important, because it meant that your miniatures now conformed to the base sizes in Warhammer Fantasy Battles for wargaming units, and it meant that your miniatures were far less likely to topple over. A bigger decider in its introduction must surely have been the saving for Citadel in miniature production costs. The small metal tab for inserting into a plastic base used far less expensive metal than the old pre-slotter base. However, I don't think that the slotter base was the biggest change in 1985. At this point in time, the most popular size of fantasy miniature was 25mm. It's important to note that this is a size measurement used by gamers and it's not to be confused with the true model scales used by railway model enthusiasts. Compare 25mm fantasy figures to the 1-72 scale model railway passengers. 
They are technically the same size. However, fantasy figures are over-exaggerated to the point of parody, whilst the railway figures are dull and lack any real detail. This is what makes fantasy figures what they should be. The overly muscled barbarian, the heavily armoured knight with a broadsword, the wizard with a huge floppy hat, the ragged goblins with serrated daggers. You wouldn't have that if a true scale was used. You'd have had the fantasy equivalent of Colin the Accountant, stood stoically with his briefcase waiting for the 1748 train from Nottingham. In 1985, Citadel turned the dial on this difference up to 11 by doing something very clever. They changed the size of their miniatures from 25mm to 28mm. They did this without really telling anyone, and in my opinion, this had a much greater impact than the slaughter. This size creep, along with improved modelling techniques, allowed for more detailing and complexity of figures, also gave the newer models a much more imposing feel. This is probably best illustrated by comparing the 1985 C35 range, by now retitled Chaos Warriors, with the smaller C35 Knights of Chaos miniatures from only the year before. As much as I love a lot of the older figures, I feel that this was a big improvement. There's many people who were important at this time to Citadel, some of these stayed in the gaming industry. Kevin Adams, Rick Priestley, John Blanche, Alan Merritt, while others disappeared into the ether without so much as a goodbye. Richard Halliwell, Nick Lund, Sid, Fraser Gray. Another name that really should be celebrated in all this is Tom Meir. Tom was an American sculptor, head honcho for the US company Ralpartha Miniatures, which were distributed in the UK by Citadel in the early 80s. He was responsible for pioneering the use of a two-part putty called Nidatite, originally designed for car repairs. Now it's wildly known and used by professionals and hobbyists alike. Green stuff, as it's more commonly known, wasn't available in the UK in the early years. Products like Milliput were often used instead but they're quite different to green stuff and don't hold the detail in quite the same way. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that green stuff revolutionised the production of miniatures and that was thanks to Mir. Mir had miniatures in the Citadel range and spent time at their design studio in the mid-80s, so must have shared his considerable experience with Citadel design team to improve their techniques and show them the green stuff. Finally, I'd like to give Roger Moosen, nowadays an eminent seismologist, an honourable mention in dispatches. Moosen was an early contributor to White Dwarf in Imagine. I'm particularly taken by his letter to White Dwarf, complaining that it should concentrate on RPGs and not become a miniatures catalogue or a print childish comics. There's nothing too surprising about his complaint, until you consider it was actually published in issue 6 of White Dwarf in 1978. If nothing else, it proves that the contents of the letters page never really changed over the next 90 issues. Gamesmaster screen! Okay, I'm back in the Lassa Gallery, here on the uh, banks of the Matlock. 
I'm building up the matlock, it's actually only a little stream that runs past, uh, no more than an open sewer actually. Uh, but nevertheless, here we am in the Lassagari. We've got Cranberries playing in the background and uh, I've got Tim Olsen with me. And we're going to look at um, this table that I've created that I'm calling the Anecdotometer. Are you alright for this, sir, Tim? Are you up for this? Well, I don't know, Dirk, because I am very shy, <laughs> you know, but uh, I'll do my best. Okay. So, I'm going to roll on this, I'm going to call out a number, and then you have to uh, give the anecdote for that uh, that number. Are you okay? okay, I am ready. Okay, here goes. It's number 19. Okay, 19 is TV appearances. Oh, TV appearances. Good. So, back in, I think it was 1983, there was a TV presenter did the morning shows. I think mm. she was on TV AM, um, a woman by the name of Tony Arthur and her son was one of my regulars so of course he used to go home and go mum you have to do a story about Dungeons and Dragons and stuff you just have to uh, so I got a letter from Tony that said we would like to invite you along to record a session on TVAM which goes out live so no pressure but could you bring some friends and actually run a D&D &D game so that people can see what it's like so I was like, that would be no problem. So I spoke to my brother Rick, who worked for me, um, and several friends, John Paul, who was the son of the Canadian ambassador at the time, uh, John Galenta, and one of our friends called Gavin, who was the most amazing DM. He could paint a picture like you can't imagine. So, yeah, early one morning, uh, took the train to, at the time I was at, believe, hate to admit this, I was at a Star Trek convention <laughs> up north, and don't worry, I grew out of that, and took the train down to London. There was a car waiting for us, so went to the studios, did the whole makeup thing and everything, and then she interviewed me while the guys played D&D &D in the background, <laughs> which was, <clears throat> excuse me, which was brilliant, because they were actually playing it. Gavin took it real serious. He had written a special adventure. So she interviewed me for a while, and then she went and spoke to the people playing. Now, of course, the people playing weren't told that they were going to be part of the interview. And so they got a bit of, a, you know, screen fright. And <laughs> so they went to each of them and said, so what do you enjoy about D&D? &D? And John, who was one of the youngest ones there, he just looked up at him like big doe eyes and went, it's, and couldn't answer. So they turned to my brother, who was, I guess he was 18 at the time, turned to my brother and said, so what do you feel about D&D? Do you feel it reflects the inner personality of yourself? And Rick just kind of went, um, it's just a fun game. <laughs> <laughs> so, and... It was brilliant because the number of people who came in the store who said they'd seen it uh, and their friends had seen it. And I think it was, to me, it was the first like nationwide coverage on television of D&D. &D. Yeah. So that was an experience. Oh, and I got paid 25 pounds for my appearance oh, wow. because I had lines. <laughs> so and I still, I funnily enough, I actually still have the check now because I, you know, I just yeah. couldn't face cashing it. It was like, look, I'm famous. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I qualified for an equity card for that. <laughs> yeah, I did more than six lines, so <laughs> I'm there. Okay, next one. 18. 
think this might be for over 18s and over. Oh, right, okay. Actually, not really, I'm just joking. <laughs> we did a games day, which yeah. was really successful. And after the games day, Steve and Ian and me and my brother, all the people from the stand who'd worked the games day, uh, went to a bar called the Lone Star for dinner. It was quite a popular one back then. And unfortunately, we'd had, we had a few beverages while we were drinking, while we were eating. And I went up to the bar to get drinks and I was wearing a Washington Redskins football shirt. And this guy at the bar, who had had a few too many, said, uh, you, sh you shouldn't be wearing that. You need to take that off. And I went, well, I'll swap you. I said, you give me your ZZ Top Tour t-shirt, and I'll give you this shirt. Mm -hmm. So he went, okay, we chatted. And somebody came up and said, do you know who that is? And I went, no. He goes, that's Dusty Beard from ZZ Top. <laughs> the one ZZ Top member with no beard. Um, and so he said to me, you drink tequila? And of course... When you're in a bar and somebody says, do you, you just say yes to everything. And uh, he goes, how much, how much money do you have? And I think the words were a lot more slurred than this. And it was, a, yeah. Uh, and I reached in my pocket, I had like 18 pounds. And he had 35 pounds. So he just stuck it on the bar and said, line them up. <laughs> and so I, sat, I stood there with a member of ZZ Top, uh, with all my Games Workshop buddies around me cheering me on, and outdrank him. And then I don't remember anything else until Monday morning when I had to go open my store. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see the uh, figures that you'd uh, painted after that. Uh, I don't think I would show those to anyone, Dirk. Thank you very much. <laughs> and who says that gaming isn't the new rock and roll? There you go. <laughs> okay, next up is number five. Okay, this one is Family Connections. Um, I was speaking a little bit earlier about how my brother worked there and my other brother came to work for me. So there was a time when there were three Olsons working at Dowling Road and at Hythe Road. When we opened up in the States, my brother went over first and opened up Games Workshop Distribution and Mail Order. Mm -hmm. And my mother was the receptionist in, in, in charge of all uh, mail order. And my father was the accountant and John was the warehouse manager and you know all around boss uh, and then my younger brother Tony joined so there was a time that with the exception of my sisters everyone worked for Games Workshop Wow, was that the Sopranos? <laughs> yeah, that's right we, uh, we had control of things so that was great though because especially in the States you think of the early days like mid 80s, 1984, 1985 it was just so expensive to mail order Games Workshop miniatures. Yeah. And I think people in the States were starting to see them. Because mm -hmm. if you, as everyone who listens to this podcast will have knowledge of the early amazing uh, figure lines that were out at the time. <coughs> Excuse me. And in the early days, we stocked Asgard, we stocked Ralph Arthur, we did all of the, the different companies. And some of the American figures were beautiful, mm. but Games Workshop figures were that one step forward. Yeah. They're more quirky designs, weren't they? Definitely more quirky designs. And I think it's, besides the Warhammer connection to them, mm -hmm. the figures themselves, especially in the early days, mm. um, the designers had fun with them. And, you know, they had armor that was completely unrealistic, but was fantastic to paint. 
Yeah. So yeah, and so my mother grew the mail order there at a time when it was pretty new to the States. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was a cool time. I liked that a lot. Yeah, brilliant. Keep it in the family. That's Definitely. <laughs> okay, next one up. Uh, 14. Okay. I wish you hadn't rolled that. Um, we used to have one of our regular customers. And this, this, I think this anecdote talks about how close we were back then and how it was a really laid-back company to work for. Um, we had a, a young customer who used to come in off school and hang out, a guy called Giles. And one day we decided it would be fun to wrap him in shrink wrap like a mummy. And it's like, you think back and you go, ah, I'm not sure that's what I should have been doing as a manager. But uh, so we wrapped him from head to toe in cling film so he couldn't move just as Steve and Ian walked in. Uh, and as they walked by, Ian just walked by and went, hey, Giles, and just kept walking and went upstairs. <laughs> so I think, uh, yeah, I think that's probably a memory that Giles remembers both with affection and disdain yeah because yeah we uh we really yeah we you got him out didn't you he's not still there now is he he <laughs> might be <laughs> <laughs> okay let's do another one and this is uh, the last one so let's give it a good roll number seven number seven i think i'd like to talk about baseball on this one okay if that's okay yeah that's good so, as an aside to the microphone, Dirk just looked at me and went, baseball? Uh, <laughs> That's like cricket, isn't it? Well, yeah. funny story for you that not a lot of people know. If you've played the early Fighting Fantasy books, you'll know that one of Ian's characters was a magic user called Yaz that featured in some of his earlier books. Um, he based that character on Carl Yastrzemski, uh, a player for the Boston Red Sox. Oh, right. So he was really into baseball, and so was Steve. So every Sunday we used to go to Regent's Park uh, and we'd play baseball. So Ian had a team called the Hot Rats, uh, which was a kind of an homage to Frank Zappa at the time, who had, his band was called the Hot Rats Orchestra. And Steve's team was called the Sharks and we used to play baseball every Sunday in Regent's Park. And we did that for probably about two years. And it was family and friends and girlfriends were along and then we'd go out to eat afterwards. It was a real family feel back then. Yeah. And I think when people talk about the early days of Games Workshop, whether it's Dowling Road or it's the Manchester store in the Arndale, which I thought was a fantastic store, or Sheffield or any of the early stores, it had that feel that you could go in and the people who were going to serve you loved the games as much as you did. They're very much so. I mean... The Manchester store was the one that uh, we went to, and uh, it, we held all of the uh, stores in like a mythic regard because we all came down the road from uh, Bolton, which is about 10 miles away from uh, Manchester, but it was like a, an epic trek that we would make into the metropolis. And uh, we used to think it was like Mega City One at yeah. the Arndale Centre and walk into that uh, Manchester store. And I, I just remember it being really bright white uh, with. Uh, it's really clean and like you said about the Dallin Road um, 
branch it was full of games and on one side it was like your conventional games and on uh, the right hand side it was stacked up with uh, role playing stuff with a great cabinet at the back filled with uh, miniatures and you used to have to fight to look into the uh, miniatures uh, oh yeah I, I remember that the Manchester store with quite. I worked there for a year Yeah. so I had quite a lot of love for that store because it whereas Dalling Road was small and compact that store was massive and it was it showed how just in a few years Games Workshop had grown that you'd go in there on a Saturday and it would be wall-to-wall people so and, did, and were the games selling so was it you know it's it still like a it still felt like a niche thing to us you know we got to explain to everybody we met what role-playing was but it, it, were, were the games really flying off the shelves oh yeah Games Workshop at the time very very profitable yeah because at the very beginning we would be stocking all the games that nobody else had mm-hmm. which was fantastic I used to have customers who would come over from Belgium mm-hmm. and they introduced me to Chimay beer the Trappist beer from Belgium which I had never drunk right. before yeah, yeah. but uh, they used to come over and bring a case of beer mm-hmm. every time and I won't do the accent but they used to come in and go, this is for you, to say thank you for giving us so much entertainment. And right. it was like, that's, that's touching. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, you don't go into your local McDonald's <clears throat> and say thanks for the Big Mac. This was people who just loved the store. Like you said, it had a mythical feel. So yeah. this was making the trek to Dowling Road. Yeah. I don't even remember um, a little lad with curly hair who might have asked for some uh, butcher paper because it mentioned it in Apple Lane. Uh, in supplement and I asked the man behind the counter if he had any butcher paper and it looked like I was asking for uh, I don't know some kind of uh, strange <laughs> artifact that they might keep underneath the counter <laughs> you don't remember that no, no. <laughs> I've pushed that aside in my mind <laughs> well thank you very much again Tim that was uh, great thank you Dirk it's been my pleasure thank you very much thank you the white dwarf Small but perfectly formed, Miniatures in White Dwarf, Part 2. The painted miniatures in the pages of White Dwarf just got better and better. In issue 52, a couple of lone wolves named Joe Diva and Gary Chalk brought us Tabletop Heroes. This regular column featured figure reviews, modelling and painting tips, and myriads of photographs of beautifully painted miniatures. And not just figures. Tabletop heroes introduced the RPG public, well, me anyway, to the diorama, castles, alien worlds, monstrous encounters, all wonderfully realised, all showing off the miniatures perfectly. For me, the great thing about Tabletop Heroes column was that, even if you weren't a dedicated figure painter, it was still a great fun to read. Joe Diva and Gary Chalk had a friendly, chatty style, which was a pleasure to read and extended well beyond just listing the figures featured each month. They would digress into all kinds of areas like recommending the background reading to enhance your use of figures. Painting up some thieves? Make sure you read Swords and Deviltry for some inspiration. Anyone who recommends Fritz Lieber is okay in my book. The only downside was that the more I looked at the wonderfully painted miniatures in White Dwarf, the more I realised that my own efforts would never match up. This feeling was brought into sharp focus by a column in issue 72, which featured a Games Day award-winning miniature from John Blanche. 
a custom-made two-headed minotaur holding a banner. And on that banner, John Blanche had painted the Mona Lisa. Let me say it again. A freehand painting of the Mona Lisa on a paper banner for a 25mm scale figure. I don't think I ever painted any more miniatures after seeing that. Brian Ansell was appointed Managing Director of Games Workshop in 1985. The following year, with issue 78, he moved the production of White Dwarf, Lock, Stock and Barrel to Nottingham. The former editor, Ian Marsh, bidding them a fond farewell in the previous issue. With that move, Tabletop Heroes morphed into Heavy Metal, a name more in keeping with the Chaos Spiky Bits philosophy that was taking over Gaines Workshop at the time. The column continued to feature amazing miniatures, focusing on the work of many of the new Gaines Workshop figure designers and painters. It was no longer written by Joe Diva, though, and I think it lost its idiosyncratic charm in the transition. But it did serve Games Workshop's increasing concentration on miniatures very well. The column was still going strong up to issue number 106, when I stopped buying the magazine, and I understand it continued long after that. For a few issues, starting with 97, it also featured Blunt Issue, a problems page for figures painters written by John Blanche and making him the second person after Lou Pulsifer to get a regular column in the magazine with his name in the title. With tabletop heroes, heavy metal and plenty of full-colour glossy advertisements, miniatures were very much front and centre in the pages of White Dwarf. Perhaps tellingly though, it wasn't till issue 100 the issue that many people see as marking the end of the RPG era of White Dwarf, that they appeared on the cover itself. But let's backtrack a bit. What did White Dwarf have to say about actually gaming with miniatures? Well, during those early years of White Dwarf, it concentrated solely on RPGs. It didn't really have anything to say about gaming with miniatures. But then there wasn't much to say. Use them to indicate your party's marching order as they trudge down the dungeon corridor and course the positions of characters in combat and, uh, and uh, well, that's about it. Personally, I always forgot about moving figures during the excitement of battles and so gradually stopped using them with RPGs. Gaming with figures really took hold in White Dwarf with the launch of Warhammer Fantasy Battle. Games Workshop's Mass Combat Rules for Miniatures. The game was first advertised way back in issue 41. The first edition rules were reviewed by Joe Diva in issue 43. Looking back over the old issues now though, it's interesting to note that the coverage of Warhammer in White Dwarf built very slowly. Over the next couple of dozen issues of the magazine, there are only a few articles and scenarios for Warhammer. The content of White Dwarf was still dominated by RPGs. It's worth taking a look at three Warhammer scenarios that were published during that period. Thistlewood, issue 45, Minus Tirith, issue 53, Glen Woe, issue 76, in a bit more detail. What's interesting to me as someone who's not done much wargaming is that there's a lot in these Warhammer scenarios for role players. They're not simply troop lists, 
detailing two armies to rock up and belt seven shades of something out of each other, each scenario has a plot with principal characters with their own distinct motivations and goals. I could imagine with some thought and selection of appropriate system, running these scenarios as an RPG, concentrating on the machinations of the significant personalities. The PCs could be a crack team infiltrating behind enemy lines to find the MacGuffin, take out the enemy leader, etc., as the battle rages around them. All three scenarios are a fun read. In Thistlewood, a battle is precipitated when two bitter enemies lead their armies in search of a stolen relic, while Glen Woe takes an irreverent spin on Shakespeare's Macbeth and the acts as a prelude to Macdeath Warhammer campaign. Joe Diva's Minus Tilth scenario recreates the Battle of Pelennor Fields. It's from some book or other, apparently, and it features some clever touches that introduce a level of randomness into proceedings, designed to foil Tolkien obsessives who would otherwise be able to predict the events as they happen, which even includes a handy figure-painting guide. It'll be a surprise to no one to learn that the Witch King of Angmar prefers his robes black. Warhammer Fantasy Battle was about to go into its third edition at the time Games Workshop published their next miniature war game. If the momentum behind Warhammer Fantasy Battle appeared to be slow, then Warhammer 40,000, Rogue Trader, was the exact opposite. Viewed with suspicion bordering on outright hatred by some role-playing diehards, it nevertheless captured gamers' imaginations and went stratospheric from the off. Introduced in White Dwarf 93, within less than a year, it dominated the magazine. Why did it succeed? Well, I think by taking well-known fantasy tropes and flinging them into the far future and combining them with their established backdrop of an eternal struggle against chaos, Games Workshop created a setting that was at once familiar and yet had enough novelty to attract new players. The rules featured impressive sci-fi gothic artwork from the likes of John Sibick, Ian Miller, Martin McKenna and others, and the game was backed by some great sets of figures from Citadel. The original Space Marines were certainly um, distinctive, a sort of mechanised techno-wombles. The standout figures for me, though, were the Space Orc Raiders. Green-skinned, gun-toting and out for violence. From issue 93 up to issue 106, my White Dwarf jumping-off point, numerous articles were published for Warhammer 40,000. Lists and lists of Space Marine Legions, statistics and rules for various new vehicles and other bits of hardware often tied to whatever new models were being advertised in that month. Ah, yes, Warhammer 40,000 heralded the emergence of the advertorial in White Dwarf, another sign that the magazine was fundamentally changing before our eyes. Curiously, only one scenario for Warhammer 40,000 was published in that time. Skirmish on Rind's World, in issue 94, had a relatively simple setup. Orcs 
versus Marines, with the Marines having to defend a strategic point and the Orcs having to attack it. But it was still an enjoyable read, if only for Rick Priestley laying on tongue-in-cheek humour with a trowel. The strategic point of the crossing was the River Pacamac, while the Orc leader was the moody albino Captain Ulruk of Mergebenerga. Subtle it weren't. I played a few games of Warhammer 40,000 when it first came out, and uh, grognards block your ears. I quite enjoyed them. But around that time, the icy tendrils of the deep freeze had started clawing at me. Real life was intervening. All my gaming was about to go into an extended hiatus. But having recently thawed out, I see that not much has changed. Tabletop miniatures are as popular as ever, and despite the fact that the prices are now eye-watering, a magazine by the name of White Dwarf still features page after glossy page of beautifully painted figures. There are loads of exciting new companies designing miniatures, with good old Citadel continuing to be a major producer. The only real difference is that these days resin appears to be the order of the day. Miniatures are no longer made out of lead. Not even the ochre jellies. In the attic! Welcome to the old new Dirk Towers. We're in the attic space, a place where I store the artefacts from a past in a pointless archive. A museum to my geek past. I'm joined by my co-host and fellow curator, Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Oh, sorry about this. There is a lot of stuff, isn't there? There is a lot of stuff. I've cleared a lot out as well. Mm, in the mood. It seems to accumulate. Oh, it, just, it just grows and grows. And that hatch is definitely smaller than the last one. <laughs> it's more of a squeeze. It's squeeze. But this is new houses alike, though, isn't it? Everything. Yeah. The show house. But in the show house, it's a big hatch. It, it was but a big it hatch. It is a big hatch. And the attic looks big because there's nothing in it. But when you actually get in. Yeah. I just put it down to a snag. I just put it down to Snaggy. a snag. Yeah. So. What we do is we come up here and we look at items, artefacts, and it's, it's these items are going to trigger stories from our past, and we're going to talk about them uh, briefly. Before, we've come up here and we've talked about more cocania, we've talked about Imagine magazines. This time, we're looking at early Citadel miniatures. Are you ready for this, Brian? I am ready. Now, you're looking, the trouble is when we come up here, it's, it's warm, isn't it? And we're a bit lethargic when we yes, come up here. Yes, we are a bit. Yeah. We'll try and keep up. We're like a dragon on a mound of treasure. We just want to go to sleep on the mound of treasure, <laughs> yeah. a mound of role-playing supplements that are up here. <laughs> well, before you drift off, have a swig of your tea. Smog. Yeah. Smog. Smog. I just called him Smog, but when you watch films now, it's called Smog. Yeah. Where's that come from? Is that right? Yeah, I think it is. It's is it? It's something to do with its Germanic roots. Uh, yeah. well, all right. There you go. So, who's going to go first then? Are you going to go first? Well, you can start off. All right, I'll go first. Your idea, okay. after all. Let's you have just, a you just drag me along to these things. Right, I've got in this old tin that used to have uh, mince pies from uh, <laughs> Marks and Spencer. It's a mince pie tin or shortbread tin, isn't it? I used to have, to sh- I used to have a shortbread tin. Yeah. yeah. So, this is a mince pie tin. Um, they don't come in tins anymore, do they? No. But, right, let's have a look in here. So the first thing I'm going to pull out of here is from Citadel's Fantasy Tribe series. Mm. And these are the dwarves. Oh, yeah. Do you remember these early yeah. dwarves? 
And uh, I, I loved the dwarves. I mean, part of, the, part of the reason why I collected the dwarves back then is because they were a cheaper price, weren't they, the others? You could get more dwarves for your money. It'd be cheaper because there was less lead used. I think Halflings so. were even cheaper, but no one liked them. wanted to be a halfling, did they? No. So, yeah, they were. <laughs> but the other thing is, is that they managed to, in these early sculptures, they managed to put a lot of character in mm. the dwarves. So when they had the beards, these were particularly melancholy and, uh, mm. you know, they used yeah. to be in a variety yes. of different poses. Um, I like this one in particular, this uh, dwarf champion. Uh, with a two-handed axe and I think what it introduced when we when got these is the idea that NPCs should have characters so these encounters mm. in the form of figures would give an indication of the type of character that the NPC would have mm. yeah. yeah I think it helped at the time as well because um, it was a time when the Time Bandits came out and I, I distinctly remember um, starting up um, yeah, I remember that. I remember you doing that. Yeah. yeah. So when, when I did a team of uh, the Time Bandits uh, using the Dwarf miniatures and uh, I'd had a Tunnels and Trolls game where they were coming from different dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, yeah, it's true that. I, I remember one figure in particular that I remember that you used as a character was a, a, character, a figure you used for Gringle. Gring, Grindle, Gringle. Gringle's Pawn Shop, which was actually Medusa, wasn't it? Yes. It was like a Medusa in a robe that looked like a, an old lady kind of Medusa. You know, yes. that kind of, it's modern Medusas are kind of, some of them look quite attractive, don't they? Yeah. yeah. In, a, in a Medusa kind of way, if that's possible. Uh, but this looked like an old lady, didn't it? Like a hunched old lady, but it was a Medusa. But you painted it up as if the snaky hair was just grey hair. Yes. And we used we used that as Grindle. I always remember that figure that somehow yeah. it was convincing. We never we never looked at it and thought it's a Medusa, just it was Grindle, that's what it yeah. was, that figure. And it, it, it's funny how they adopt these characteristics, don't mm. they? The ones that you, yeah. you, you you give them. And I tell you what, I tell it was also good about using miniatures that were um that were NPCs. It was always good when you rather than rather than tell a player that uh, an arch enemy had appeared. You could just put the figure on the table, couldn't you? Yeah. Remember doing that? You'd have a figure that was like a the evil wizard, and he'd yeah. been around a bit, and he'd escape once or twice, you know, as, as arch enemies do. Yeah. Uh, and then now and again, when you were playing, he'd have your dungeon floor plans out and everything, and all you had to do as a games master was just get that figure out. Yes. Just get that figure. You open the door, and you're in a room, and it's I don't know, it's like a temple or a throne room or a treasure room or whatever, and there's a figure in there, and you'd put that figure on the table. And people would go, oh my God, it's him again. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that was always a really good way of using figures. It didn't matter uh, too much about where they were positioned on the board or anything like that. It was simply that act of, this, is, this is the figure for the arch enemy. All I'm going to do is put it on the table. And the, and the other way around is uh, it, uh, when they had friendly characters. So like when the dwarves mm. turned up, as they used to turn up in different dungeons. Yes. Yeah, and uh, different yeah, games. You could do so. the same principle, but yeah, in reverse. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. It was a good, it was a good way of introducing an NPC. All you had to do was simply pop them on the table, and all the players would go, "Oh, all right, yeah. oh, they're back." Yeah, that the, was quite effective actually. They were always uh, good to paint the dwarves as well, because obviously it was more beard than uh, more beard than anything else. You got yeah. the beard right, everything else would follow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, there was a particular uh, dwarf that uh, that I had as well was the uh, dwarf on stilts. Yes, dwarf with, on stilts. Yeah, uh, the heightism there. Yeah, and the uh, <laughs> dwarf stretcher crew 
Yes, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They were, they were, <laughs> for old dwarves, they kind of, um, like a comedy element to them, wasn't there? Yeah. You know, you never got, I, I mean, I, I might be wrong, but you never got comedy elves, did you? No. It was always no. comedy dwarves, wasn't it? Or goblins. Or goblins, yeah. Dwarves and goblins. But you would never get, you know, an elf figure that was comedic. Well, you might have done, but I don't remember any. No. But certainly I remember the dwarf ones. Yeah. yeah. It, seemed to like, it seemed to be that they had fun with them. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's strange, though, looking at them now, um, in my imagination and um, back then, they were more distinctive than they are now. So when I look at the mm. figures now, yeah. they've not got as much detail on as I remembered. Yeah. And I think it's just because the modern um, miniatures are so detailed and really well sculpted mm. that they look a bit inferior in comparison. Yeah, as a yeah. 12, 11-year-old. Because they had that kind of quality to them that somehow gave them a... It's all a magical quality, really. These yeah. metal, metal miniatures, all with their own character. Well, what's in your uh, shortbread tin? In the shortbread tin, well, it's squashed in there. There's not much room for it. But is the boxed? Is a boxed set of RuneQuest adventures? Again, it's that thing, isn't it, where the miniatures made it real. So yeah. we were reading about Hamakt, you know, the warrior, the the, the warrior's soldiers god in in mm. RuneQuest. For those who don't know. And in that box of adventurers, there was a miniature Hermacht warrior with the rune on his shield, the Hermacht rune on his mm. shield, wasn't it? Did that kind of thing, yeah. And you kind of, it brought RuneQuest to life. Yes. Because you had this tangible figure in your hand and mm. you thought, oh, right, I get it, you know. And I think as well, it, it made us realise the kind of classical nature of RuneQuest, that yes. RuneQuest yeah. isn't pseudo-medieval. RuneQuest is ancient Greek, Roman kind of mm. stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So the figures were dressed in, you know, I think the Mac one looked like a Spartan, didn't it? With, yeah. with the helmet and the kind of crest on it, the plume on it, yeah. and that kind of thing. And so it brought to life that world. So there was a correlation between these miniatures and this game we're playing, and those miniatures brought that, again, setting aside the whole idea of putting them on a board and going, right, you're over there, you're over there, the monster's over there. S forget all that. Just the very fact these, these figures existed brought that game to life and made it more tangible, I think, and more yeah. real. And I think, as well as the realisation that it was um, an ancient setting, is the idea that you could actually play non-human characters as yeah, well. Yeah, because there were, there was, I think there was a baboon in there. Yeah. There was a duck, of course. Yeah, yeah and a moracanth. Uh, More a camp, yeah, there yeah. was, yeah. Yeah, so these unusual mm. creatures that are part of Galantha yeah. were actually shown as being yeah. player characters, you know, you, yeah. Could, yeah, yeah. you could be those mm. adventurers. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that is an interesting aspect. I mean, we both touched on it now, haven't we, that the figures were less to do with where you were on the board yeah. and more to do with bringing it alive in some way, you know. Yeah. Either it be an NPC or a player character. Yeah, that was that was an aspect of the figures that you sort of forget. I think and the figures really brought things to life. I think, yeah. irrespective, irrespective of you know 
your yeah. your there kind of thing. And and I think we said the same thing when we looked at the traveller figures back when we did the traveller. Yes. 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 You know, yeah. it, those figures, that box set of figures, was a way in of understanding the universe and mm. giving yeah. us yeah, yeah. ideas yeah. of what things look like. Mm. Yeah, it did. It brought, yeah, the traveller ones. That's a, even, in some ways, that's an even better example because you didn't really, I mean, traveller, you know, notoriously, no illustrations, no nothing. Yeah. So the figures really did bring it alive because this is, oh, right, this is what these people in the traveller universe wear. These are the clothes they wear. This is what a vac suit looks like. This is what a space marine looks like, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's an aspect of figures that... Yeah. So, so what we've looked at at the moment is that idea that characterising NPCs, mm. giving a world view, giving an understanding of the yes. setting. Yeah. Let me uh, have a rummage in my little uh, box here because okay. I've got one here. Now, do you remember this uh, character? Now, as well as NPCs and uh, setting, there are certain figures mm. that will always be indelibly linked to certain characters that we've played. <laughs> Correct. And this figure is, um, well, it's called a ranger. Yeah. But if you look at it, it's got a wide-brimmed hat. <laughs> it's, it has, yeah. It's smoking a cheroot. Mm. It's got... Uh, a one-handed crossbow. Yeah, hand crossbow, yeah. And a very distinctive poncho. Yes. And it's, you know, obviously based on uh, the man with no name, Clint yeah. Eastwood's character. Um, but this this character, this lead figure, as soon as you see it, all it says is the weasel. Yes, Eddie's weasel. Eddie's yeah. character, the weasel, yeah. Yeah. And it'll always be the weasel. Yes, it will. No one will persuade us otherwise. <laughs> I mean, the thing is with, with Eddie's characters... Uh, I mean, he'll, he'll admit this himself, won't he? They always fall into um, three camps, don't they? Mm. Um, you know, he, his idea of uh, role-playing is playing three characters <laughs> in different settings. So yeah. a variation. And to be fair, that's two, two more than a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's either um, Brett, uh, as played by Harry Dean Stanton yes. in uh, Alien. Yeah. Right. Right. So... <laughs> That usually comes out in a futuristic uh, yeah. setting. Or there's um, the Grey Mouser. Yeah. Know, so always kind of the roguish figure. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, a little bit cheeky with it, you know. Mm. Um, annoying the NPCs is, is part yeah. of his shtick. <laughs> and then the other bit is like Clint Eastwood. Um, yeah. The man with no name, yeah. you know, kind of enigmatic maverick who kind of breaks away from the group to do his own thing yeah. and uh, has the one-liners. Yes, correct. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to go this way. All <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> do his own tweet thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so the weasel really embedded um, that kind of characterisation mm. that he gave. Yeah. And he had that character for a long, long time. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, this was the figure, this is the figure that he used and every time I see it I always think of that I, I, yeah and I think what's good about that figure is this, this was this was often a mistake people made I remember making this um, <laughs> that, that figure's good because it, it, it summed up perfectly the character of the weasel Yeah. so it, it, it works perfectly but what you would sometimes do and I, I was always guilty of this is you would roll a character and before you really knew much about that character and you really had much chance to think about it, you'd pick a figure. And then three or four games later, you'd look at that figure and think, it's totally inappropriate, that figure, yeah. for my character now. Yeah. But somehow, an unspoken rule, you weren't allowed to change your figure. Yeah, yeah. If, if, I'd, if I'd, I'd remember rolling a barbarian who became a rune lord of Stormble. Yeah. 
And I remember picking a character which was like a big barbarian in a loincloth yes. with a big sword. And a, and and a, a top knot. Yes, top a knot. Top knot yeah. yeah. And my character was nothing like that. He was yeah. nothing like that. But somehow, if, I'd, if after a year of using that figure, I'd have said, you know what, I'm not going to use this figure anymore, everyone would have said, what, you can't do, you can't do that. No one yeah. said that, but it felt like that's what would happen. Yeah. So once you pick your figure, that was it. Yeah. Even if the figure, over a period of time, once you'd kind of got into your character and, and bedded them in a bit, yeah. it was completely unrepresentative <laughs> of your character. But you somehow... You weren't allowed to change it. No. But, <laughs> but I suppose this is a good example of where the essence of uh, the character is more important than the individual details. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's the clash, isn't it? The clash between the tabletop and the theatre of the mind. Theatre of the mind, yes. There needs to be a kind of a parallel to it. There doesn't need to be an exact match. Yes, quite. Yeah. So what's, what's in your box? Well, I, I've got some big ones in my box. Have you? I have. Oh, yeah. Cool. <laughs> I like to think so. I like Some would one. disagree. I like a big one. I like, Do you like a big one. Yes. Well, one one thing I remember big ones fondly. Um, <laughs> they did. They did a line of giants and dragons, didn't they? Yeah. You remember there were giants and dragons. And I had I had two giants. I've still, I've still got them actually. Got them. There they are. I got a frost giant. Oh yeah, that's a good one. And I got a hill giant as well. And I've got this one, a green giant, a green dragon rather, green dragon, and I've got a red dragon as well. Uh, the wings were always difficult. They always had yeah. separate wings, didn't they? Yeah. They had to stick on. But I, know, I was never sure how. Yeah. I, I, think, think, I think like there's like the Holy Grail that people would say, there is special glue you can get. I never managed to buy it. Yeah. It's a bit like that craft shop thing, isn't it? It's a bit like the butcher paper. Yeah, yeah. I never managed to find any. There's special glue that you could stick your dragon's wings on with. Yeah. I think we used all sorts. They used glue and then blue tack. And all sorts of things. They'd, they'd fall off mid combat. Yeah. You'd plonk the dragon down, and, and you'd think, oh, that's impressive. And the, the wings would fall off halfway through. Yeah. And players would lay claim to which wings have fallen off. It's dead now. Yeah. So, and, we, and we used to think, you know, that was a disappointment for us, but as Daily Dwarf said in uh, his last piece, you know, that yeah. it was happening all over. It was happening all over the country. Yeah. Dragon's wings were falling off all over the country. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The red, the the red dragon was slightly better because. The wings like shoved shoved into the sides, I think, on little like sticks. Yeah, and that, that little stayed, stayed, stayed on a bit better. Yeah. But the, the the green dragon just kind of balanced on the back of it as it was rearing up, yeah. and just fell off all the time. But the reason I picked the big ones is because they were great in terms of giving that sense of spectacle. I think. Yeah. There was nothing better than putting a big figure down on the yeah. table in the same way that 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 feeling of putting a notorious NPC figure on there's there's something about saying in this room there's a dragon uh, or, a, or a, a same room because a wyvern or something yeah, like yeah. that wyvern wyvern smoke smog whatever tomato tomato there's a wyvern in there and putting that figure down yeah. that green dragon figure a rearing up dragon was, was always a great moment again brought the again it's that thing isn't it it brought it to life really in yeah. a way, even if nobody actually moved anything or didn't care where yeah. they were, but it did bring things to life. And the giant figures as well, the frost giant, you know, this frost giant raising the sword, you know, is a great figure that you can put that down. And it's a giant, and it's and it's a lot bigger than all the other figures because it's a giant. Look, yeah, yeah. there's something it's slightly childish about it, really, isn't 
the childlike element to it. And when we, years ago, we were children. Really? We were children. Teenagers, children. But there was something great about the big, a big figure. I still think there's a thrill, though, because there's something impressive now when you go mm. into Games Workshop and go into yeah. uh, model shops and see the big, big dioramas, yeah. yes. you know, there's something yeah. Yeah. breathtaking. Big, yeah, a big dragon, a big robot, or a big monster, big, the big figures that you think, ooh, well, you yeah. know, look at that one. <laughs> because it gives a sense of scale, doesn't it? Yes. It gives yeah. a sense of uh, drama to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember that green uh, dragon in particular. That was one of the early ones, wasn't mm. it? Well, I think it was the first one. First one I bought that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, were, they weren't cheap, were they? They were, they were quite expensive. The big stuff. So again, there was that sense of they were quite they were sort of special, weren't they? Because they were, they were big and expensive, you know. Well, I have. Uh, I'm afraid to say my next one. I'm not proud of this. So. <laughs> okay. But a companion when when that green. That green dragon came out. There's a companion that came with that, oh, right. and it's this uh, packet of three here. All the all oh, the dear, yes. all the dodgy things come in yes. packets of three, don't they? And this is a <laughs> a fantasy special. It was called, and I'll, I'll just give you the title just to. Uh, mm. oh. this, is, this is all we need to say. No. All right. Naked girls bound to a post, a cross, and a yoke. I'll say that again. Naked girls mm. bound to a post, a cross, and a yacht. I don't know what I was thinking. I do know what I was thinking. Fifty, 50 shades of the grey mouser, isn't it? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, I'm not, I'm not proud of it. Well, it's, it's, we never questioned it, though. I know we didn't, know. We didn't question it, but we were teenagers. I yeah. mean, now, it, it, it's like watching a... It's like got a power with watching an episode of Love Thy Neighbour or something, isn't it? The 70s, yeah. 76 comedy. You think, oh my God, was this allowed? They don't still make those, do they? No, but what... what, what, what <laughs> <Surely> not. <laughs> what compounds it for me is the realisation that those uh, naked women figures mm. yeah, were part of a um, special series. And included in that special series were uh, Dungeon Doors... Trap doors, mm. um, yeah. heroes, armor on a post. That's right. So yeah. it's like the furnishings of a dungeon. Yes, yeah, yeah, which makes it even worse, isn't it? That, yeah. that, that you've got all the furnishings plus three naked women tied to a post. Yeah. Right. What does that say? <laughs> yeah. These yeah. women have no agency in yes. this story. Yeah. They're just here to. Yeah. Uh, think about. And we, we wonder, don't we, why girls wouldn't play role playing games? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that, that said, I mean, when I, when I saw them, I mean, Mrs. Dirk saw these, and she, when I got there, yeah. she, what the hell are they? What are you doing? There? And mm. that when I said I bought them when I was 12, she was yeah. like, good grief. It is, actually, the more you think about it, it's <laughs> astonishing, isn't it, that A, they were made, B, we bought them, C, never questioned them, and D, I've still got them. <laughs> well, I didn't want to mention that. <laughs> I didn't want to mention that, but uh, yes... But it, what it reminded me was those early, those very early games mm. when we were home brewing our adventures. Yes. They were essentially just like a, I'm choosing my words carefully, but like a wish fulfillment. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the NPCs were thinly veiled, uh, disguised versions of the bullies at school. Yes. 
Yeah. So it gave us an opportunity to club them with a bastard sword. Yes. Um, around the table, and you know, to rescue the the the, the women from. Well, yeah, these yeah. It's almost right. like you, you couldn't you couldn't get a real girlfriend, but you could rescue a naked one side to a post in a game. Yeah. 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 I know what you mean. There is that, but uh, but then again, I suppose what's. I, I mean, you. I don't know. Maybe will people forgive us? Will people forgive you for keeping them? I, I can't possibly say, but. People, I think we can be forgiven because we were 13, 14 at the time. Yeah. Um, well, younger than that because this was yeah, early days. Yeah, they were early, yeah, they were, weren't they? Uh, but I suppose what, <laughs> the finger of blame has to point at Games Workshop for making them because they weren't 14, were they? You know. They weren't 13, 12, they <laughs> no. weren't that old. They were grown, they were grown ups. Yeah. <laughs> What's their excuse? I know what ours is, youth. Yes. We, we were foolish youths, please forgive us. I think their defence would be the imagery of the day, so the mm. Frank Frazetta uh, pictures and, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's true, yeah. There, there was a lot of that kind of thing. I mean, there's, there still is, I suppose, isn't there? Yeah. You know, yeah. but less, less so now. Well, let's consign those to the uh, mince pie tin. Let's melt them down. Yeah. Melt them down and make a Brianna of Tarsh figure out of it. Yeah. Right them. There you go. There you go. That's what we'll do. <laughs> yes. So what's the last thing in your uh, box? Then? Well, the last thing in my box is we've gone from uh, our un- unreconstructed past to, to the future. The future? 40,000 years in the future. Oh, a grim, grim, dark future. The, a grim, dark future, yes. Um, and these, these aren't even made of lead. They're made of plastic. And it's a collection of space 40, Warhammer 40,000 space marines ah. that I've got here. Um, which harks back to the time when we were 40, our 40th birthdays, and we wandered into Games Workshop after being, not being in there for a long time and bravely strode up to the man with the ponytail behind the counter who called us Buddy. I think he did call us Buddy, yeah, didn't he? Did. Uh, and said, go on then, let's have a game of this Warhammer thing. And he took us over to a table. It was an all cell, wasn't it? It was Space Marines versus the... Tyrannies, tyrannies, tyrannies. Well, it's it's actually a starter set that was out at the time. So this mm. was what about uh, well, it's nearly ten years ago now, isn't it? And uh, yeah. it was like something like Raid on Macabini or something like that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like, like that. Something like that. Yeah. And you had to you had to kind of rescue a scientist, didn't you, before yes. the uh, yeah. teleportation? Thinking. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think I played the. You played Space Marines, and I, I played the Tyrannies. Tyrannies, yeah. yeah. I think I think I won, didn't I? No, I think I won. Ah, okay, we're going to have to rewind on that. One. We'll have to replay it. Like so that. you you got some figures then? Well, afterwards, I think we we both got like yeah. the idea of maybe getting into it. You know, we kind of thought maybe, maybe this is all right because we had quite a good time. We enjoyed it, didn't we? Yeah. And I remember my my son at the time must have been about how old have you been? He was about ten. He was about ten. Yeah. Uh, and he kind of got into it a little bit. But, but So we got some of these figures and painted them, but it was one of those things where my son briefly got into it, but I ended up putting them together and painting them. I yeah. quite enjoyed it. It was kind of bringing back that feeling of painting miniatures again. So I painted these space marines. I think there's, there's about 12 of them. Um, but then it, fil- it fizzled out because there is that problem of it's a lot of effort and time to play a game. And, um, and I think we both agreed that we weren't convinced that it would be quite as much fun uh, on a kitchen table with some books stacked up for buildings and 
yeah. a bit of green, a bit of green tablecloth over the it top. It does. Of it. it does. I think the thing is with the, those Warhammer t- tabletop games, it does feel the sense of all or nothing, doesn't it? Yeah, it feels like you have yes. to go for it. And it felt, it did feel like that. We enjoyed the gaming games workshop because they had this sort of bombed out uh, tower block, didn't they? And yeah. all the little trees and all the everything. It looked, it was fantastic. And you think, oh, this is this is really good. But once you try and get into that. I, there was that sense of, oh, well, blimey, I've, I've painted 12 Space Marines here and it's taken me a month and a half to do. And, and you know, I'm going to have to do a lot more than that to really play well, it. Well, I, I still, I bought that starter mm. set then, that Raid on Macabini, yeah. whatever it was. And I've, I've still got, this still on the sprue. They're still on the sprue, the uh, Marines yeah. are still on the sprue. I never got around to uh, doing it. I read the rules, and uh, but never got around to building the models. So my son now is eight. Mm. And I, I've got this idea that I'm going to do the same thing as you. Yeah, I'm going to, mm. This is going to be his gateway to entry into yeah. the world of uh, uh, games because you kind of think, you know, this is model making is going to capture his imagination yeah. first, yeah. like we did. You know, this is going to yeah, be his yeah. gateway, yeah. gateway in. But it's like choosing the right time, isn't it? Because mm. he's eight now. I think he's too young yeah. to get it. Yeah, there's, a, there's a moment, isn't there, where you can. Yeah, indoctrinate kids into these things. Yeah. <laughs> See, I overdid it with Springsteen. He was a big Springsteen yeah. fan because I indoctrinated him. Yeah. But it was too soon. Cause too he's, soon. He's listening to New Edition and Bobby Brown now. So. Well, yeah, you see. So you got to you got to judge it right. You got to mm, judge it. Yeah. Right. I think the the thing with the Warhammer stuff, it, it, there's an interesting parallel between role playing games and that when one of the one of the drawbacks with the role playing game, when when we first got into role playing, one of the drawbacks was. You wanted to play it immediately, but there was a big rule book. So yeah. there was always that problem, wasn't there, that I've got a new game, but you're going to have to give me like three or four weeks to wade through the rules, get to grips with it, that kind of thing. And Warhammer has a similar problem in a way that although the rules are simpler, the prep of models gets in the way of playing, or at least that's how it felt to us. That, you know, yeah. It was that thing of, I need to do all this model-making to recreate that experience in Games Workshop yeah. and feel that I'm playing it. I suppose that thing, age old thing, playing it properly. Yeah. I'm playing it properly because I've got all the models and I've got a building here and a vehicle here and this kind of thing. Yeah. And it was just a bit too much. And it probably wouldn't, maybe it wouldn't be too much if we were 12 and we had all the time in the world. But when you get grown up with a job, you think, well, I just haven't got the time to do this. And that's yeah. one of the, that was one of the drawbacks with it. And that's what turned us off it a bit. Yeah. But I do like I do like the Warhammer figures. They do look good. Yeah, they are good. You know, yeah. I, did, I did enjoy putting still, them together. I still flirt with the idea that one day, you know, going to do it, going to commit myself to it. Mm. But every, everything else seems to get. But in it's the time, way. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and also, I, I'm also I'm never convinced that I would sacrifice time playing role playing games for time playing tabletop war games. I don't yeah. I don't think I ever would. And but that's yeah. just. That's just whatever floats your boat, isn't it? Yeah. But. Well, that's it. That's the uh, artefacts uh, that we've brought in our little tin in the attic. I think we need to squeeze ourselves through that hatch. Yes. Okay. Thanks for that, Blimey. See you. Okay. Ya. See you. Bye. Pause bag. Before he arrived for our meeting, Tim sent me a text to say that he was on his way, and to get me in the mood, his message was in the style of a fighting fantasy post. You enter the snug. Take a seat as you wait for a stranger in a black leather jacket. All about you, the sing-song of low-level conversation, 
lulls you into a false sense of security. Suddenly, the black-jacketed stranger enters the snug, Starbucks cup in his hand, newspaper under his arm. What do you do? Well, as quick as I flash, I I type my reply. I'll offer him a pint. He responded, Half of the hippest ale that they have to offer, please. Hippest? Hmm. Interesting. I started to get a measure of the man. A man of discerning taste. The lass has a fine selection of craft ales, or beer, as we call it in Bolton. I chose an exotic-looking fruit beer, brewed in tequila-infused barrels from Portland, Oregon. And you can't get more hipper than that. Portland, Oregon, in Manchester. I headed back to the snug and checked my phone. There was another text. Hoppiest. Damned autocorrect. Hoppiest. He wanted hoppy beer, not hippy beer. Well, you hip, you hop, you don't stop. Uh, Thanks to Tim for the interview and to Ian Westbrook for his support in bringing us both together. Thanks too to at Orange and at Daily Dwarf for their contributions to this episode. We seem to have hit a nerve. There's been more response to this than any other episode, with listeners pouring out their own love for the game store experiences. I've compiled some edited highlights. Mike Cool from the podcast Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice was there. I was in the queue outside One Darling Road on the day of opening. Of course, coming in from South Bucks, I got there far, far too late for any of the open day special offers. Specifically the one bargain copy of Empire of the Petal Throne that I'd set my heart on. But at least it was set in my memory and I could pop in there whenever I had an excuse to be up in London. I do recall the collapse of Gaines Workshop into the abyss of making much more money and I felt betrayed and disgusperated too. I must have been over 30 by then so I think it was a gamer thing rather than a teenager thing. Living near the metropolis, I had other sources, like the RPG section of the Virgin Store under the shadow of Centrepoint. Eventually, they decided that RPGs weren't making them enough money either. That was London. So what was happening in Birmingham? Here's from Allegius Downport. For me, Games Workshop Citadel Miniatures always meant more to me than the RPGs when I first started gaming in the early 80s, though I'd picked up a few cast-off Ralpartha figures from school friends in 1982. My trips to the Games Workshop in Birmingham didn't start until the early summer of 1983. Based at Unit 37 of the Birmingham Shopping Centre, I used to catch the bus or the train with my cousin Carl. For me, it's not just what was in the shelves, like many people, but the oddly lasting memory was the smell of the shop. A heady mix of coffee that had been cooking in the percolator for far too long. Shelves of fresh new books and the occasional blasts of underarm perfume from one of the staff known as Ted. Those early trips involved asking Ted, Can I see Trey such and such? and feeling slightly intimidated by watching Ted whilst he 
rifle through the tray looking for that dwarf figure that you set your eyes on from the Citadel catalogue. Imagine my surprise after entering the Midlands Regional Heat of the Golden Demon Awards in 1986 that I was one of the winners. I had my figures displayed in the glass cabinet of the Birmingham shop. I was able to go to the finals in Nottingham and though I didn't win anything, people with far bigger budgets and more skill than me won. I'll always have that memory. Oh, and uh, during the judging, my ogre did catch John Blanche's eye, so it did get fondled by one of the great Games Workshop artists for a short while. Ordering RPG material off the internet doesn't quite compare to those early 80s trips to Games Workshop, where the chance to go and look through the RPG goodies was definitely a strong point, along with that smell of burnt coffee. If you visit Allegis Downport's blog, you'll also catch his reminiscences about playing Tunnels and Trolls back in the day. I'll put a link in the show notes. So that was Birmingham. What about the experience in Liverpool? Well, when the podcast was released, Kiha from Dissecting Worlds podcast began to tweet with some bitterness about the effect that the arrival of Games Workshop in the city had on the established Games of Liverpool. Neil Benson wrote in to tell the story. Oh no! Ah, I I won't do the accent. It's great someone has such fond memories of Games Workshop, but I look at it very differently. My RPG life started at 17 in the summer of 1983, defined by weekly visits to Games of Liverpool. That was the case for many years and it seems I have similar memories to yourselves with Games Workshop. When Games Workshop opened in Bold Street, Liverpool, I'm guessing it was 1985, it was a big thing. I recall that the store had a big opening at 11am with many of the top games on sale for a pound. With a few quid in hand, I went down there with my mate Dave about 10.30 and was hugely disappointed to see the queue. No chance of a bargain game for me that day. Initially, Games Workshop had a diverse range of RPGs and board games, with Warhammer stuff on the increase. Even then, I found that Games of Liverpool was far more interesting. Over time, it seemed that Games of Liverpool struggled whilst Games Workshop thrived while cutting down the range of games it supported until it only had Warhammer and other licensed stuff a few years later. I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but Games of Liverpool eventually shut down. Whether it has anything to do with Games Workshop, I don't know. I was in the early years of my RPG hiatus when it happened, so the event sadly passed me by. Thanks for that, Neil. So that was the Liverpool story. We have a significant Welsh contingent within the Grog Squad community who have a lot of love for F.C. Parker. Here's Daily Dwarf. F.C. Parker was part of a golden triangle of shops of my youth, along with Spiller's Records, the oldest record shop in the world, fact fans, and Lear's Bookshop, all within a minute's walk of each other. Situated on the corner of the Royal Arcade, I remember F.C. Parker as a rather narrow, cramped shop, crock-full with the most wonderful games and figures. The proprietor was a friendly and knowledgeable chap, who I picture in my mind with a large handlebar moustache. 
I bought all of my White Dwarfs from F.C. Parker, as well as all the classic RPGs of my youth. I don't remember if they sold more conventional games or not. The only other things I do recall them stocking were the Paul Daniels Magic Tricks in the curved boxes. Remember them? Not a lot. In the late 80s, F.C. Parker moved from the Royal Arcade to High Street Arcade and was still going strong when I moved away to go to university. In White Dwarf 100, it was announced that it was going to become Encounter Games, a games workshop independent specialist stockist. Mmm, alarm bells were starting to ring. They became blaring klaxons when the official games workshop store opened across the street. I don't think Encounter Games lasted much longer after that. A real shame, but the memories live on for us South Wales grognards. Wayne Peters, who just got into the podcast, has also added about FC Parker. During the heady days of the mid-80s, nothing compared to a Saturday trip to Cardiff to wander in what Daily Dwarf described as the Golden Triangle. My Golden Triangle, I've heard. My Golden Triangle, however, was different. It consisted of FC Parker, Beatty's, the model shop, and later on, the Virgin Megastore, which had a huge role-playing section. FC Parker was my favourite, though, simply because it felt like a shop run by people who actually played the game and gave it a bit more of a homely, less corporate feel, I think. I only have a tiny handful of very vague memories of FC Parker now. Sadly, I vaguely remember the shop on the corner of the Royal Arcade as a small, dingy brown shop, like a tobacconist, with its wooden trays of loose lead minis and racks of RPG books. I remember one day plucking up the courage to ask the young chap behind the counter if there was a setting supplement for Traveller, and I remember he looked quite puzzled. I can't remember if he mentioned the Spinwood Marches or not, but that's where my memory ends. I'm delighted to say that now, once again, we have two independent stores in Cardiff. The rather magnificent Rules of Play in the Castle Arcade, and also Firestorm Games that I've not visited yet, they're a bit off the beaten track. The former is dedicated to board games, but has a small but healthy RPG section. And it was lovely to see, when I went popped in yesterday to buy the D&D starter set, how incredibly busy it was. These days, one of my favourite things is to pop into rules of play and drool all over the Fantasy Flight Star Wars supplement that I can't afford. Thanks to everyone who's written their stories. Uh, these are edited highlights. You can find more at thegrognardfiles.com. Feedback and the sense of community is what keeps the podcast going. You can get in touch via Twitter at thegrognardfile or email dirtthedice at gmail.com or review us on iTunes. And that way you can help me deal with the existential terror that I will actually die at some point. We also have a Patreon account and there have been a number of new people who've joined the campaign since the last podcast. Thank you all and welcome. I'm going to name check you all next time when I talk about the plans for the next fanzine. Until then, thanks for your generosity. It really does help cover the costs and it inspires us to do new and different things in search of interesting content. Before I tell you what's coming up next, I want to hand over to Tim again. He's going to tell a story that's that 
it's at the very heart of the Grognard Files. This is what it's all about. Play is the thing. Tell us about getting the old gang back together. Um, I think I'm known for the cliche, let me tell you a story. Yeah. But this is a good one. Because after I moved away from London and went to Manchester, I got married, had a child, went back to the States. And with, of course, with this being mid-80s, you know, there was no social media back then. You lose touch with people. Mm-hmm. And I had built up like a network of friends in London that you just can't replace. And I think as the years went on, I thought, I really need to get in touch with them. Mm-hmm. So a few years ago, I thought, I'll use Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll use social media and try and get in touch. So I just started looking for names. And the first name that I found was Ian Westbrook. Now, Ian was and is my best friend. And that moment when we connected again, and it was like, oh my God, we need to get together. So we got together. uh, We talked about having a reunion. And I said, if we're going to do a reunion, it has to be at Dowling Road. We have to meet there. So we sent out invites to everybody that we'd connected with. And... The time drew close, and we took the train to Ravenscourt Park, infamous station because it was the Dowling Road station, Ravenscourt Park. Uh, and I walked down the stairs with my brother Rick, and to be met by Ian, uh, who is a web designer now, and our friend Steve, who is a head librarian in London, and turned the corner to see two friends, Ray and Ranko. Um, Now, the thing about Ray is Ray actually works at CERN and works on the Hadron Super Collider. Wow. Right? So we didn't find... I didn't walk up to him and say, hey, dude, what are you doing now? But over the course of that evening, we all just... It was like, let's talk about what's happened over the last 25 years and then just go on as usual. So, yeah, he works there. One of my other friends, Eddie who spent many years doing historical recreations uh, for English history, uh, is now a priest, uh, uh, a Navy priest at the moment. And it was, Giles is a high court judge. You know, the other Giles, the one we wrapped in cling film, uh, owns his own chalet in France and rents it out to holidaymakers. It was like this whole crowd you know, my, my brother is was career military uh, and is now an analyst. He's retired from the military. He's now a civilian analyst. So it was like everyone made it. So it was one of those things where there were no sad stories. Yeah. So, yeah, we get together about probably about twice a year. And it's always the same. Meet at Dowling Road and go up into the West End yeah. and just hang out and talk about games and Ian's in the middle of uh, getting together, he lives down on the south coast, getting together a gaming day. So we're all going to go down and just role play for the weekend. Brilliant. So Because yeah. his children are into it. So I think it's one of those things, most of our kids are into it because they see how we're into it. Yeah. So yeah. I so just uh, sounds like a team of uh, superheroes. Uh, that's it. Getting, getting together for one last job. That's yeah. it for our, our secret identities. So yeah, <laughs> the guy at Hadron Super Collider, and it was yeah. And uh, yeah, he told me a story during that first night when we were all doing 
you know, what have you been doing over the, the last 25 years, uh, where there was a surge in the in the circling super collider. And when it stopped, it had blown a hole through a toolbox, a perfect circular hole. So it was like science fiction. It yeah. was like a laser beam. I'm, and it was... I'm going to make a note of that for my next travel yeah. adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So, what are you uh, what are you planning on playing when you all get together then? Because I know that Ian uh, had a game of uh, Stormbringer when he came to Grogmeet. So, uh, oh, he is he is the RuneQuest man. Yeah. he really does love RuneQuest. But uh, I think right now everyone's going to take something down, and then probably go to battle to see who plays what. Yeah, but it will be gaming galore. Yeah. So yeah, and. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit like the the movies, let's get the band back together. Yes. Because we got the group back together, and it feels pretty good. Come on, let's pull ourselves together. That's enough misty-eyed nostalgia, Grog Squad. Let's get back on track and talk about games. The next Grog Pod returns to Watson Hall, where Big Jack Brass joins me for the next part of the spy sequence. We're talking about Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes, which has just been released on PDF drive through RPG. So do your homework. Until then, adios amigos. <laughs> <laughs>